This is the Read Your Bible Podcast, the daily podcast designed to help you understand and apply the scriptures. Nothing will grow your relationship with Jesus Christ more than studying the Bible for yourself. I'm your host, Drew Tankersley, and for the next few moments, I want to invite you to join me as we dive into God's Word together. We'll ask God to help us see what He wants us to see so that we can be who He wants us to be. It's the stuff of Baptist legend. Churches splitting over the most ridiculous of arguments, like the color of the carpet, or the size of the bathrooms, or the lighting fixtures. Somehow, Satan finds construction in churches a fertile ground to plant the seeds of dissension and disunity. But in 1 Kings chapter 6, we see the wisest of kings, King Solomon, in the midst of the most glorious of church-building campaigns. As we'll see in the chapters ahead, the results were fantastic. But as we'll see today, the most important work is often in the places where no one sees. And that truth itself is a potent reminder that the most important work God does in any of us is often in the inner sanctum where God's presence most fully dwells. Notice with me, if you would please, in verses 11 through 13 of 1 Kings chapter 6 today. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you are building, if you walk in my statutes, observe my ordinances, and keep all my commands by walking in them, I will fulfill my promise to you, which I made to your father David. I will dwell among the Israelites and not abandon my people Israel. First Kings chapter 6 chronicles the construction of the temple that Solomon built for the Lord in Jerusalem. This permanent structure was the culmination of the work done by Solomon's father, David, whose desire was to build a house for the Lord. Now that the people had finally and permanently come to the land and settled there, it was only fitting that God should have a house as well. However, God was quick to remind David that he doesn't dwell in houses made by hand. No structure, no matter how big or ornate, could be a dwelling worthy or capable of God fully inhabiting it. The chapter opens with a timeline as to when these events transpire. And the text tells us that this was the 480th year after the Exodus. This reference is not an insignificant detail. Remember, Israel's whole story had been predicated on God building a nation from Abraham's seed. A people would descend into Egypt and be mired in slavery for 400 years and then be miraculously delivered, brought through the wilderness, and finally led into the land that God had promised to give Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. By chapter 15 of Genesis, all of this had been prophesied, right down to the time that they would spend in Egypt. And God had been faithful to his people to the fullest degree. God promised Abraham a land. They were now living in that land. God promised Abraham a son who would become a nation. They were now a mighty nation. God promised Abraham that he would deliver them from Egypt. God did this with the most unique and remarkable display of his power, a force so powerful that generations later, the people still feel, feared the God of the Israelites. 
God promised he would lead them through the wilderness and with miraculous provision, incredible protection, and perfect direction, God led them at last, after their own debacle of unbelief, to the land that he had promised, thereby ultimately fulfilling this plan for them. On top of all of that, God had promised to be with them locally and symbolically. His majestic presence as the children of Israel were brought out into the desert, descended on Mount Sinai, and all of the creation shuddered in the presence of such divinity. The ground quaked, the smoke billowed, the whole mountain was practically on fire with the glory of God, a presence so strong that God forbade the children of Israel from setting foot on it. God's holy presence was so palpably residing with them that he had to divide himself from their presence for their own protection. Nonetheless, God wanted to be as close to them as he could be, even if it meant symbolically residing behind the veil designed to protect his holiness and their existence. That tabernacle structure represented the very presence of God with his people and it remained in the middle of their camp. It went before them and directed them and protected them every step along the journey from slavery to settlement. But now, all of that had changed. The people were now settled in the land that God had promised, and the Ark of God was in Jerusalem, moved there improperly at the cost of Uzzah's life. David had to learn the difficult lesson of humility and God's presence in the Ark. But the rest of the structure was still in Hebron, so with the tabernacle practically subdivided, it was now time for God's presence to dwell fully with his people again, symbolically in a permanent structure. And all of that lies in the background of Solomon's construction. They had traded their Bedouin status and their tents and migrations for houses and permanent structures, and they longed for the same for their God. So Solomon undertakes with great care and lavish provision to build a permanent house to stand symbolically as the locus of God's presence among his people. In chapter 3, we learn of Solomon's humility in asking God for wisdom, a request God honored not only with what he asked, but also what he didn't ask, namely riches and fame and fortune. And in this chapter, God's generosity to his people is in full view as we learn of this glorious temple that Solomon has constructed for God. But what strikes me here is that unlike the building of the tabernacle under Moses, God gives no specific direction as to the materials used to construct the temple. Exodus and Leviticus are replete with ridiculously detailed instruction for Moses' construction of the tabernacle. But the text here gives no indication as to divine direction in erecting this temple. The text leads us to believe that this is actually Solomon's design and materials. Because while David wanted to build God a temple, God was interested in building David a line. But God directly endorses with powerful display Solomon's design. He even promises to inhabit it with one critical stipulation. He says, as for this temple, you are building. If you walk in my statutes, observe my ordinances, and keep all my commands by walking in them. I will fulfill my promise to you, which I made to your father David. 
I will dwell among the Israelites and not abandon my people, Israel. Did you see it? You see, God's inhabiting their temple was contingent upon following God's statutes and laws, on observing his commands and ordinances. Their failure to do this is precisely why God would eventually leave the temple complex altogether in Ezekiel's day, because they had utterly abandoned his laws and precepts. Israel's history is one fraught with failure and disobedience. And so it wasn't that God was leaving them to be mired in captivity again, but that they had actually abandoned him. Their obedience invited and endorsed his presence in their life, but their disobedience excluded and expelled him from their lives, despite their religious observances. Disobedience is critical to them, and it's critical to us. One final note that I find interesting here. The writer intricately details how each section of the temple was constructed and appointed. But the most visibly stunning construction in all of it was clearly the cherubim that resided in the most holy place over the Ark of the Covenant. It was a majestic, costly, and beautiful structure. But what's so astounding to me, though, is that the only person who would ever see that was the great high priest once a year could behold the splendor of that cherubim above the ark. Only God and the high priest would ever see the signature piece in all of the temple construction. Now, as we think about application here, I think it's significant once again to highlight the paramount value that God places on obedience to his revealed word. We can't hope to have the Lord's presence reside within our midst and endorse our ministry if we're not vigilant in walking in consistent obedience before God. But when we do, God powerfully dwells with us. Our compliance will lead to God's presence, but our rebellion will lead to his repulsion. And if we want God to dwell with his people, then we better be a people insistent on obedience. Secondly, as we consider the locus of God's presence in our own lives today, it's not housed in temples made with hands. Paul said we are the temple of God. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we willing, like Solomon, to do the hard inner work in the holiest of places of God's residence in our life? Do we spend near as much time devoted to cleansing the internal vessel of God's greatness in us? Or are we more interested in decorating and appointing the outer structures that everyone else sees? Do we have the integrity to save the most beautifully appointed and costly devotion of our lives from the inner man and his intimate fellowship with God? You see, the most beautiful piece of the tabernacle resided in the inner man with spiritual intimacy with the Holy God. So are we willing to devote the time, energy, and resources necessary to construct in the inner man times of spiritual intimacy where we remain hidden behind the veil with God? Or are we more interested in appointing the outer structure to be seen of men while ignoring the inner man that invites the Holy Spirit's presence. What does the inner sanctuary, the holiest place, reveal in the temple of your own life?
Think about the times that you spend with God. Is it an austere and dusty communication within the veil with him? Or is it vibrant and radiating with the beauty of your own worship and the glorious presence of our God? Let's pray together. Jesus, help us to spend the time necessary decorating with lavish provision the inner sanctuary of our hearts. May this be a place of your radiant presence. May our lives be marked with obedience and integrity so that your company can indeed reside in our midst. And may we spare no expense to cultivate this intimacy in the inner life. And may you be pleased to dwell with us. In your name, amen. Thanks for joining us today for the Read Your Bible podcast. For show notes to today's episode, please visit readyourbible.info. While you're there, you can listen to past episodes as well as access a host of additional resources designed to help you grow in your faith. It's all there for you at readyourbible.info. That's readyourbible.info. For more information about South Seminole Baptist Church, just go to southseminole.com. Join us again tomorrow as together we help you learn to read your Bible.